ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Save Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And it's great to be back here on the podcast after a couple of weeks' break. Thank you, David Spears, for doing what you do. PK, last week the Coalition was criticising the Prime Minister for leaving the country for APEC while there were domestic issues to address. But this week the focus is on what the Prime Minister did or didn't say to Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco. Anthony Albanese is facing increasing pressure to confirm whether or not he confronted the Chinese leader over a naval incident that saw Australian divers put in danger, one injured by a Chinese warship sonar. And while the PM is keeping mum, the question is whether the newfound stabilisation between our two countries is already faltering. For that and for the other big political issues of this week, and there's a few of them, we're going to be joined a little later by Michelle Grattan from the conversation. But first, PK, the government tried to seize back the domestic agenda this week. We had several major policy announcements, some of them with big price tags, some of them so big the government couldn't tell us yet. There was the online safety reforms announced by the Communications Minister Michelle Rowland at the National Press Club. There was the enormous expansion of renewable energy investment incentives um, and subsidies by Minister Chris Bowen. And there was the unveiling of the new cybersecurity strategy by the Minister for Cybersecurity and Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill. High level, this is going to be a game-changing strategy for cybersecurity in Australia, which is without question our fastest-growing national security challenge. And I think for all of your listeners who have experienced the last 18 months of life in our country, there would be uniform agreement that we just cannot continue as we are. That was Cybersecurity Minister Claire O'Neill talking to you on breakfast. Game-changing, PK. But is it just a re-announcement of the cyber policy the PM unveiled in Washington or is there meat on the bones now? What's it involved, this strategy? There is absolutely uh, more detail that was announced in this strategy and it's a it's a strategy that I think is quite comprehensive. So essentially the government is pumping around $600 million into trying to fight cyber criminals. Also a key part of it is forcing businesses to report when they've been hacked. So through a sort of mandatory reporting process and to create a special uh, kind of board to to deal with, you know, investigations, to learn lessons from major attacks, to try and really alter the way we we do this. Because what the backstory, of course, is some of those hacks that we saw last year that were quite um, significant and how flat-footed we were as a country in responding. And the government has been, you won't be surprised, there's always politics, isn't there, Fran, critical of the former government's readiness around this and keen to kind of reset on some of this. So 
There will be more work that's been outlined and more detail to come out on on further strengthening of critical infrastructure, uh, bringing the telcos into line with other critical utilities like water and electricity. Um, The minister also told me that while it wasn't achievable at the moment, once the infrastructure and the supports were in place, she wants to see a ban on paying ransoms, which happens all the time, and she says that is going to be the future. She's, they're not there yet, though, because they say basically the country's not ready. Yeah. Like if they were to ban ransoms now, there is no ability to deal with the kind of economic consequences of, of the shutdowns of people refusing. Mm. So there needs to be work, she said, but that is the objectives. So it's huge and it is focused very much on consumers, on the on the onus being on government to help small business particularly. Like if you're a big, big business, of course, you know, it's still hard for you, but you do have an infrastructure inside your business to try and deal with these. There are constant attacks like this in the cyber world, but a small business, uh, medium business, they are not equipped is the message. And so that's what they've been trying to, to change here. Yeah, because it's, uh, you know, cybercrime is a big issue and it's only going to get bigger. And it's probably bigger than many of us are cognizant of, I think, even with those big hacks, you know, that, that hit a lot of consumers. But this policy announcement comes just a week after Australia's digital spy agency, ASD, reported cybercrime in 2023 was up 23%. I mean, that's really big. So we, as you say, we're talking at a, at a business level, at a consumer level. This is not even really dealing with it. At a, at a national level and a national security level, but they're all linked, of course. Still, though, the opposition, you know, really didn't think much of the minister's announcement. The shadow minister, James Patterson, called it a flop, the plan, said it was too little too late. You know, there's, there's this ongoing war, isn't there, PK, between the two parties because the minister has done all she can at every opportunity to slate the blame for our lack of preparedness, really, around cybercrime to the last government. She just said they dropped the ball on it. But PK, with all these domestic issues being put up in lights by the Albanese government this week, has it been able to grab better control of the agenda after a a couple of pretty messy weeks, you know, including this week with the brouhaha over whether the Prime Minister actually did raise that Chinese naval aggression against HMAS Toowoomba with President Xi Jinping? Yeah, I think they've certainly had a better week than last week, but last week was probably their worst week. So, you know, coming off a very low bar there. And and a few pretty terrifying polls for the government, I would think, too. What do you reckon? Absolutely. So the government knows the honeymoon is well and truly over. It's probably been over for some time, but now... The, the the tricky issues have really hit them hard. And, of course, that's showing up in public polling. That's It's, it's an inevitability. It's not too late for them to reset. Sure. And what, you, what you've seen this week is an attempt at trying to do that. Has it worked entirely? Well, no, because some of the issues that were already there have not been settled. And you've mentioned a few times that, the, you know, the Prime Minister and, of course, the answers around that incident, that certainly dogged them this week. And then there are the the international issues, Fran, which are demanding the government focus on these international issues as well. And they're playing out pretty difficult in difficult ways, particularly for, I think, Labor more than the Greens or more than the coalition. Now, the coalition has been hardline pro-Israel and I think where they represent people, that's probably an easier proposition. And then for the Greens, you know, they're calling for the full ceasefire for very critical of Israel, part of that movement. It's easier for them too because 
they can um, align quite clearly with, with with what is a big protest movement on the streets. But for the government, they've been walking this line. And I think that playing out in terms of the language that's being used, social cohesion has really become... Uh, very front and centre, how this volatile situation is playing out on the streets with all of these, the news that's emerged about the the deal on the hostages agreed by Israel and Hamas, uh, the government trying to, to walk that very narrow path, wanting more of this, longer peace uh, ceasefire, that is where they want to land, but not being ready to call for it fully. Here's Penny Wong. I think we would all want to see uh, a sustainable ceasefire, but we and we also know that cannot be one-sided. Uh, and uh, we recognise that the steps that have been taken today with this agreement that has been negotiated uh, is progress towards these goals. That was the Foreign Minister Penny Wong. So they're trying to juggle those sensitivities that are playing out in a pretty intense way across the world, but clearly across Australia too. Acknowledging, of course, that they're in government, and they have the most wicked balancing act of all of the players, wouldn't you say? Oh, they do. And it's not only, of course, our our comments, our public comments as a, as a government, as a foreign minister, you know, to the country and to the world about the war, the, is, the Israel-Hamas war going on in Gaza, but it's also the impact all of this is having back home and social cohesion, the concern around this here in Australia is very real. We're seeing angry protests on our street regularly, both the Jewish and the Arab communities are reporting a rise in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks in the wake of the, the deadly October 7 Hamas assault on Israel and then, you know, Israel's retaliation that has cost so many thousands of Palestinian civilian lives. But PK, you know, the numbers, the actual figures on the rise of anti-Semitic incidents here in Australia are stark. They're at record levels across the country. The Jewish community is feeling targeted. It's feeling unsafe. And I thought it was interesting this week that after being accused of weaponising anti-Semitism in the parliament last week, this week, Peter Dutton stood alongside the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, at the opening of the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne to reject this scourge in the strongest terms. Here they are. As the conflict continues, anti-Semitism is on the rise but we will not let it find as much as a foothold here. Australia will always denounce it and reject it utterly, just as we do all forms of racism and prejudice. Whenever and wherever the forces of anti-Semitism are on the march, there is a need for moral courage and moral clarity. Right now, there is a need for unequivocal and unqualified condemnations of the anti-Semitism we are witnessing. There must be no tolerance for that which is not tolerated. So that was the Prime Minister followed by the Opposition Leader, but PK, even there, as they were both on the same page in denouncing anti-Semitism and essentially giving a message to the community to stop this kind of um, social unrest and and to to stop anti-Semitic attacks, you know, you could hear there in Peter Dutton's response almost the challenge that he keeps putting out to the government to just simply defend the Israelis' right, Israel's right to defend itself without those balancing comments we hear from Penny Wong and others at times now, which is the way Israel defends itself matters. In other words, the, the, the sort of unbridled killing of those thousands of Palestinians in Gaza is not okay. It's difficult. It's so difficult. Uh, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> 
Michelle Grattan, Chief Political Correspondent at The Conversation and Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra. Michelle, welcome to The Party Room. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. And Michelle, it's great to have you back. Michelle, it was just a few weeks ago that Anthony Albanese was in Beijing meeting with the Chinese president, being labelled a handsome boy by Chinese media and continuing the push, you know, to stabilise relations. This week, the tide has turned and the Prime Minister's found himself in some hot water over whether he actually raised the dangerous naval aggression by China against some Australian Navy divers while the warships were in international waters inside of Japan's exclusive economic zone. That's the setup. The event actually occurred the Tuesday before the Prime Minister's trip to APEC, where he did speak to President Xi Jinping on the sidelines. But the PM is being less than open about the question of whether he raised this naval incident or not. Here he is. I don't talk about private meetings on the sidelines, discussions I have uh, with any world leader. That's how you keep communications open. But I can assure you uh, that we raised these issues in the appropriate way and uh, very clearly, unequivocally. Michelle, is that good enough? It's a pretty serious issue in a relationship. Should the PM have raised it? And are we any clearer on whether he did or he didn't? Clear as mud, I think. Certainly, I think he should have raised it. We don't know whether he did. And I don't think that too many people would accept this explanation that he doesn't talk about uh, meetings on the sidelines of conferences. Firstly, he did, in fact, make some remarks about that meeting. And secondly, these meetings uh, are not like really private communications. He invokes the texts that Scott Morrison leaked uh, when he was Mm. in an argument with the French president. Well, that's a completely different sort of context. I think that he certainly should have brought up a matter that uh, obviously was a very serious one because we know that from the government's communications, Richard Miles's statement, uh, the Prime Minister's own interview this week when he said this was unprofessional behaviour by the Chinese. And so if he didn't raise it, it's very odd. And if he did, he only had to say, well, yes, of course, I brought it up. Maybe he wanted would want to fudge a bit the, the mm. detail of that response from the Chinese president. But I think that to say he brought it up would have been uh, mm. appropriate. Of course, if he didn't bring it up, the question would be why. What's your instinct, Michelle? I mean, you've been around watching politics for a long time. What's your instinct? If he had raised it, do you think he would have let that be known? I think it's hard to say. One reporter I heard saying that uh, they believed he had raised it, but uh, that doesn't seem to have been uh, confirmed even on background in general this week, but certainly I have an instinct that he should have raised it and he should have clarified uh, if he did and if he didn't. Okay. Now, while the government has attempted, and that's a key word there, attempted, to change the narrative with other announcements this week, that, that call to disclose has really grown louder. The shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham spoke to me. Here he is. And simply conveying concerns at officials level might be fine if we were dealing with a one-off incident that was clearly accidental. Uh, But when you see repetitive patterns of behaviour in terms of military activities, 
it's appropriate that it be raised at ministerial or even leader level. And we all know that Prime Minister Albanese had the opportunity to raise it at leader level. And it appears from all of his statements that he did not. Well, at the very minimum, it should be raised at ministerial level. And it's not even clear from the government's response that that has occurred. So that was the shadow foreign minister, Sam in Birmingham, speaking to, to RM Breakfast, clearly trying to entangle the foreign minister, Penny Wong, and the defence minister in this as well. But should this issue now be raised at a ministerial level or, or has it already? Well, I think it's not precisely clear the uh, various ways in which it's been raised, but we do know that there have been strong statements put out by uh, the Defence Minister and strong comments made by the Prime Minister. So I think that the displeasure of Australia has been registered and, of course, the Chinese have pushed back and sort of suggested nothing to see here and the Prime Minister rejected that. But uh, the core question is just this meeting and why is this important? Well, it's important because we have now a much better relationship with China, and that's evolved over the last 18 months, primarily, I think, because China wanted a reset, but also because uh, the change of government provided that opportunity. And the government has, up to this point, handled that stepping up of an improved relationship pretty well. But if this was not raised by the Prime Minister in that meeting. It suggests that he didn't want to really endanger that progress. Mm. And that's important because the Chinese would read the signals here and they would think, ah, well, we have Australia where we want it. Yeah. And what's that phrase that the Prime Minister always use? You know, it's important Mm. that we um, cooperate where we can disagree where we must disagree where we must. I mean, (laughs) this is a test of that, right? It is a test, and in a Sky interview this week, Anthony Albanese said this was a, a an example of disagreement. But the thing is that uh, if you're going to abide by that formula, well, you have to uh, deal with things when it's awkward to deal with things. And obviously, if you're in a meeting with the Chinese president, it is awkward to bring up such a matter. So uh, I think that's why uh, this is really important when you could say, oh, well, it it doesn't mean Mm. much. But it in fact means quite a lot, given that the Chinese will always be pushing the envelope, even though we have this much better relationship. Yeah. And I also wondered whether the foreign minister or the defence minister didn't try their hand given, you know, it wasn't that many years ago when the Chinese ministers wouldn't pick up the phone, as as the as our government was telling us then. Um, Michelle, another issue, the fallout from the High Court's ruling on indefinite immigration detention continues. Last week, the government pushed through those, that emergency legislation which imposed very strict conditions on the former detainees. You know, they conceded, the government conceded to extremely tough opposition amendments, which has brought criticism from lawyers, refugee groups and the crossbench. Um, you know, concerned at the speed at which the changes were being pushed through. Now, just a week after that legislation was passed, these tough new laws are already facing a new High Court challenge. So this remains very tricky and messy for the government, doesn't it, Michelle? And politically dangerous too. 
It has been an absolute mess, I think, and uh, it's tested the government, it's tested uh, the ministers involved, Claire O'Neill, who's the overarching minister, and of course, Immigration Minister Andrew Giles. People were saying last week that this legislation's pretty robust, so there is a High Court challenge, but that doesn't mean it will go down, but it it is obviously a, a, a test for it. I think that the government has seemed on the back foot on this issue all through. It didn't seem prepared for the High Court decision, even though it said it had contingency plans. It was pretty obvious from the start it was going to have to move to legislation, but it didn't concede that for a few days. And then, as you say, it gave in to opposition amendments because uh, it wanted to get that legislation through quickly with minimum fuss. Yeah, it wanted to rush it all through, but hasn't that rush caused a new headache now? Well, it depends on whether the challenge is successful. I think a challenge was absolutely inevitable anyway. And as I say, people say the legislation is robust. I think one interesting feature of this was how it was handled by Richard Miles. Now, he was determined to uh, get the thing through as smoothly as possible. He had to go overseas, I think, the next day. So he had a a time constraint. But um, he, when the opposition said it was going to move amendments in the Senate, he approached Peter Dutton and uh, essentially said... um, can we do a deal do here? Now. Come yeah. round, come round to the office, and then, of course, accepted with the other ministers all the amendments. Now there has been some criticism of that, but I just thought the style of Richard Miles was quite interesting. Uh, Anthony Albanese, who by this stage was at APEC, was kept in the loop. But would it have gone quite as smoothly if the negotiation, such as it was, um, or the capitulation, if you like, had been in the hands of the Prime Minister directly rather question. than the low-key Richard Miles? Well, he also just, sorry to be blunt, he rolled over on all of it. So how could it be hard? I mean, he just said yes, didn't he? He did say yes, but... Uh, he managed to uh, just smooth the way in in that capitulation, which was which was just a, a quite interesting question on the mm. uh, matter of style. I thought. Well, also yeah. goes to how you know how sensitive Labor feels it's and how fragile it feels it is around these issues on immigration and national security. You know, been dogging them for twenty years, really. Well, that's right. But also, I think that it's true that rightly or wrongly, community feeling was very strong on this issue. Now, many people pointed out the logic, which is that we let out rapists and murderers from jails all the time after they've served their sentence. And why are these people any different except that they're non-citizens? That is a totally logical point, but I think it is not a point that resonates in the community and Labor knows that as well as its own uh, past difficulties and sensitivities around these sorts of issues. There's another question here too, or another problem for the government, that it's now talking about further legislation, uh, possibly to re-incarcerate 
some of these people, yeah, that's the, right. the worst uh, offenders, by some other mechanism. Now, it, it, it has maintained for some time that's not mm. possible, but now it's considering that. So again, it seems to be responding to the opposition. It seems to be somewhat uh, behind the game, as it were. So, yeah, that, that I wanted to go there, the preventative detention-style laws which are used for, for terror being brought here for the most violent offenders. When I spoke to Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, she, was, she really talked that up and said they wanted to get the best laws ready and make sure essentially that, you know, they were bulletproof to try and have a comprehensive set of laws which deal with this. Is that in response to the political heat that they're trying to now stay ahead of this? Well, I think mainly and uh, the public heat too. Michelle, just finally, the government's rolled out a few major domestic policy announcements this week. PK and I already talked about the cybersecurity strategy from Claire O'Neill. But what about Chris Bowen's massive expansion of the government underwriting private renewable energy and storage investment? It's an acknowledgement. The government's happy to say that it's not on track to meet its commitment of 82% of renewable energy into the grid by 2030. But the minister was also pretty clear, again with Patricia this morning on breakfast, that it's about keeping the lights on. Here he is. This is mainly about reliability. As you you know, we've had four gigawatts of dispatchable power leave our grid over the last decade and only one gigawatt come on. Now, Michelle, reliability. No government wants rolling blackouts as coal-fired power stations close or fail repeatedly as they have been doing. The government really needs this renewable energy and particularly the dispatchable energy storage, doesn't it, online as quickly as possible because blackouts be diabolical for people and for the government. Well, absolutely. But of course, this will go into the medium term and it does reflect the fact that there's a real problem around the policy. It's not the general transition policy. It's not moving fast enough. There are all sorts of hiccups, particularly resistance from local communities to the transmission lines and even to the offshore wind farms. So I think that this is an, an acknowledgement of problems and trying to uh, dress it up as, as best the government can. But it's also been provided, it's a huge expansion. It's actually quite a significant policy, um, I think, Michelle, but the price tag isn't there. And we're told it's an auction, we, we can't possibly know, but that's a pretty key thing, isn't it? Yeah, it could be a lot of money. It's a, it's a, it's a five times expansion, I think, of, of what they were going for. It could run into a great deal of money. Uh, of course, it depends on a, a number of factors because it is a, a guarantee uh, rather than a handout, as it were. But it's interesting that it's on budget and uh, it's also... So we will uh, know eventually to, then? And it's not going to be disclosed in the budget uh, at the time. So we won't know for quite a long time just how much this is costing us. Right. Michelle, I noticed that Chris Bowen was trying to blame um, the former government, the Morrison government, for, you know, going slow on on the consultation around transmission. I mean, this is a very politically sensitive point for the government at the moment in seats that the opposition's going really hard on up in the Hunter, for instance, around there. But is it also an acknowledgement that, as Bowen says too, there's a global race for capital on, and our government perhaps hasn't considered the level of spending that's expected from the industry and maybe from investment partners or allies like the US in this, that there's pressure on the government to spend a lot more? 
to get it going faster. Yes, and, and that is obviously what we're seeing in, in this guarantee. I think the situation is that it's a very ambitious transition path. It was always going to be a, a very difficult one. We're behind the eight ball, of course, because of the climate wars over the past decade and more. And the government came in with the, with a flurry of we're transforming everything and we're writing uh, the program into legislation and so on, or the the ambition into legislation. But there's a really, really big gap between ambition and implementation, and implementation is going to be painful for the politicians, but also, frankly, for the community too. It's a transition we absolutely have to make, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be uh, smooth. Michelle, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast and to mine your encyclopedic brain. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Michelle. See ya. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And this question for our question time is from Sarah and she writes, Hi, Fran and PK. There has been lots of reporting on the cost of living that points to older people as the main contributors to inflation. But I haven't seen any advice on a solution to this. For those of us lucky enough to have a good income and no mortgage, it's not clear how we can help. Stay home while businesses suffer? We can, of course, donate more to support services, but that won't help with inflation. Do you have any advice? It's a really interesting question. Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. And you're right. The the latest figures have indicated that the group with the most spending capacity at the moment are older Australians, people, as you say, who have paid off their mortgage. They might be still working or else they've got good superannuation because, of course, you know, Paul Keating's superannuation scheme has meant that more people are retiring with significant income. So, yeah, the answer is to not stop spending in local businesses. That would be the wrong answer because that would be counterintuitive. I think the Grattan Institute has some pretty firm answers if you want to go look them up. But basically, their recipe for this, I think, is to get more equity back into the system because they say there's too many tax breaks for older Australians, for boomers, basically. You know, the superannuation um, tax breaks are too generous. And for older Australians, a lot of them might be coming out on quite generous super schemes that are not available to younger people. So the Grattan Institute says the government should tighten that. They should tighten up the tax breaks on the family home, for instance. So there's a, a range of tax options that the Grattan Institute says the government should focus on, and that will even things up a bit and bring more money into consolidated revenue to pay for the services that younger Australians won't be able to pay for in quite the same way because um, there's not going to be so many of them. So, And it's also the services that older Australians are going to be using, like hospitals and health services. So that's one way, you know, some argue it could be made more equitable. In terms of individual Australians, I don't know what else they could do, except maybe people could stop complaining about more housing being built in the suburbs near them. Get rid of nimbyism because we need to build more houses because people, Australians and young Australians particularly, or younger, don't have access to enough housing and affordable housing. We need to build more and we need to stop saying, no, not in my street. No, not in my street. Uh, That's uh, powerfully said, Fran. Look, we love getting your questions. Keep sending them through because um, they make us think about new things like that one did. Of course, we're fond of voice notes, although, Sarah, we don't mind that you've written that one in. But, you know, think about maybe sending them um, so we can hear your lovely voices in the future. The party room at abc.net.au is 
the place to send them. And you can follow The Party Room if you haven't worked it out already on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And I'm glad to have you back, Fran, and thank you again to David for all of his work, um, always with The Party Room too. I'll see you next week. See you, PK.